2: This podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks, cloud accounting software that will save you time and money. For a limited time, FreshBooks is offering listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. Go to freshbooks.com coolmules and enter coolmules in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com coolmules for 50% off your first three months. Before any of the smugglers even got to Las Vegas to pick up the cocaine line suitcases, there was trouble. They were supposed to travel in pairs. But the person who was brought in last minute to go with Katiba Sunusi didn't make it across the Canadian-American border. So Katiba carried on alone. When the remaining five got to Las Vegas, they picked up the luggage from strangers in the parking lots of their hotels as planned. Katiba was given four suitcases to somehow transport Solo to Australia. Too much to handle, and pretty conspicuous. It was decided that he'd hand one off to Robert Wang. When Nate Cardi and Jordan Gardner met two guys in the parking lot of their hotel to get their new bags, which they had been promised would be expertly outfitted with undetectable secret compartments, they said the bags smelled like fresh glue. That's when Jordan says he told the two guys he wasn't going through with it. And they put a gun to his head and forced him. Here's Jordan's lawyer, Adan Havas, telling it from his client's perspective.
3: The next thing you know, these Mexicans pull out a gun, point it to my head, and tell me, if I don't take this, we're going to kill your family. Now, if somebody puts a gun to your head and says, if you don't take this to fucking Sydney, I'm going to fucking kill your family, you're taking it to Sydney.
2: And so he did. They all did. And yeah, they got caught. We still don't know for sure what did them in. It could have been a lot of things. Maybe it had something to do with that sixth person who didn't make it over the American border. Maybe they looked nervous at the airport and gave themselves away. Maybe someone noticed when Nate tried to take the wrong bags off the carousel in Sydney. Twice bags that belonged to Robert and Katiba, two people he wasn't supposed to even know. Maybe it was the suitcases themselves that got them caught. Each smuggler had brand-new Samsonite bags, and they had a lot of them, 12 suitcases between five people. They made it to customs, their last obstacle before the airport exit. That's where a border guard asked Robert and Portia Wade why they were traveling with five suitcases to spend only about a week in Australia in the middle of the summer. Katiba was also stopped at customs. Nate and Jordan, too. They were taken to separate rooms. All five had their bags x-rayed and then the linings cut open. This revealed a total of 81 bricks of high-purity cocaine, neatly wrapped in plastic and stamped Z8. All five of them went to jail in Australia, just before Christmas 2015. They were charged with attempt to import a commercial quantity of a border-controlled drug. They would all plead guilty. I'm Kasia Mihailovic, and this is Cool Mules. Slava knew right away that the scheme was busted.
1: You just know that when you don't get that text, you know that shit has hit the fan. Like the worst possible thing that could have happened has probably happened. And at that point, it's really just survival mode. Like I had no, t- I wasn't even thinking about Vice at that point. What
4: were you
1: thinking about? I going to jail? Because I didn't know the full, the full scope of it. We didn't know if Jordan didn't make it and other people did. We didn't know anything at that point.
2: There was no immediate news coverage of the arrests back here in Canada, as far as I could tell. But you can imagine that after the smugglers had a chance to call their families and stopped answering their friends, it all started to leak out.
1: So after my roommate was confirmed, captured in Australia, and I was incredibly stressed out, I told two people at Vice, one of whom was Ben McCoo. We were at the bar, we were having drinks, it was after work. And I just, like, I was visibly stressed out and he asked me what was wrong. And I told him that, you know, my roommate just got caught in Australia smuggling drugs. And he goes, holy shit, well, at least it's not going to get back to Vice because you didn't go, right?
2: Slava generally describes a tense time during which he was basically just waiting to see if anything would happen to him. He was worried about the cops and he was worried about his job.
1: So there's the whole month of January where it's really just like looking over your shoulder every meeting that they're having. You're assuming is about you.
2: He was right to be worried. It didn't take long for someone to tip off Vice management.
1: Someone had sent a series of anonymous emails to Vice. Someone, I believe, from Jordan's friends or family group. Like I said, Jordan was a pretty well-liked guy. And that's when Patrick pulled me into a room and said, like, these things are coming out about you. Uh, Do you know anything about that?
2: Patrick McGuire was the head of content at Vice Canada and Slava's boss at the time. Slava says he never liked Patrick, but others tell us that the two were friends.
1: I lied. I said no, because at this point, it would have been fruitless to admit, like, yes, I didn't know that. Like, just, I didn't see any way of it working out for me, so I just lied.
2: Miraculously, it worked. Patrick allowed Slava to return to his duties as Vice Canada's music editor. And if he had any lingering doubts about Slava's guilt, another anonymous email seemed to put them to
1: rest. And then about a week after, they pulled me in again and they said, hey, don't worry about that thing we talked to you about because we got other weird emails about other people in the company.
2: Patrick, who now works for Red Bull, didn't answer our questions about this. But I was able to confirm the existence of one such email from another person who was targeted.
3: My bosses brought me into the president's office told me there had been an anonymous email sent suggesting that I was running a cocaine trafficking ring out of the office. And the anonymous email, of course, came a day after someone sent an anonymous email accusing Slava of doing the same thing.
2: This, again, is Justin Ling, former vice staffer, current vice contributor, and my former colleague at Canada Land.
3: I told them pointedly that not only was there there zero basis behind the idea that I was secretly some... It's a mafia don, um, but that I had no idea what the fuck they were talking about. And they took that at face value and said, thank you. We didn't think you were involved, but we had to check.
2: Justin is pretty sure he knows who sent that email.
3: This was very transparency, Slava's attempt to try to shift blame from himself. Um, And I'm sure on this podcast, he denies everything. But of course, he is also a convicted criminal. So take that with a grain of salt.
2: Maybe Justin's right. And Slava did send the email in order to shift the blame from himself to Justin. Or maybe the point was just to muddy the waters. If Vice management was thinking of firing Slava because an anonymous email accused him of running a drug ring, well, now they had two anonymous emails accusing two employees of doing that. Would they have to fire both of them? What if more emails came accusing yet more employees? It seems reasonable and even kind of clever to think that the more anonymous accusations Vice received, the more likely they would be to ignore them all. For the record, Slava denies sending the email. But whoever did, it worked in Slava's favor. If it didn't throw vice management off the trail, it at least stopped the questioning for Slava. I asked Vice about all this. They have not replied. So, Slava got away with it for a while. Things went back to normal. Slava kept coming into work every day as if nothing had happened.
1: It was also this weird Sword of Damocles thing where this story is out. There are clearly other repercussions coming, but I don't know what they are.
2: That sword turned out to be Jake Cavanche.
0: To find out if it's right for you,
2: Cool Mules is brought to you by Freshbooks, cloud accounting software that will save you time and money. So I went through all my email history and it was really interesting to see because I remember signing up for Freshbooks in the grad lounge at Ryerson. And my first invoice from Freshbooks was to OpenFile, the now defunct local news website. And the editor that replied to it was like, oh, you can just put all this stuff at the end of the month. We don't have to invoice for every single article. And then I remember thinking like, yes, I can do that with FreshBooks because I'll just put it in every time and it'll keep track of how much money they owe me. And I don't have to remember. And it really did make me feel like I had a handle on things. For a limited time, FreshBooks is offering listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. Go to freshbooks.com coolmules and enter coolmules in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com coolmules for 50% off your first three months. Remember Jake? He was the vice intern who had turned down Slava's proposition. When Jake found out that he wasn't the only person Slava had solicited, he and a few others decided to do something about it.
5: Things became more intense. We were at a friend's apartment, and I should say we, it was like me and a few of the people who had had this conversation and realized we'd been approached. There's probably maybe like three of us there were like, we'd been approached by Slava. One of the people there who was not aware of the situation heard us and was like, you need to tell the company. I ended up messaging my editor and was like, hey, I need to meet with you privately. So we went and had a coffee. I told him the situation. And then he was like, I know. Apparently back in December, when I guess Jordan Gardner and that were originally like arrested, someone had sent an email to Vice executives and was like, this guy is responsible for this. And he had been questioned and they were just like, couldn't put anything on him. So they let him go.
2: When it was just an anonymous email accusing Slava, Vice did nothing. But then that email was confirmed by their own employee, and he said that he wasn't the only one. Now there was no excuse. Weiss now knew that Slava was involved, and they knew that he had been targeting their own people. There are a lot of things Weiss could have done once they knew this. They could have filed a report with the police. They could have conducted a thorough internal investigation of current and past employees to find out everything they could about the criminal enterprise that had been conducted partly out of their own office. They could have let their news department know that it had the independence and authority to report on Vice as it would any other media company caught up in a drug scheme. But we have no reason to believe that they did any of that. Instead, their first move was to converge a team of lawyers.
5: They called us in really early. We had to get there at like 6 a.m. We all had to give testimonies to their corporate lawyers.
2: Later that same day, Slava walked into work with a black eye. But he says it didn't have anything to do with the botched drug smuggling. He says it was actually guys affiliated with XO, the hip-hop crew led by the pop singer The Weekend.
1: In that specific black eye case, it was over a tweet. It wasn't even an article. But I had written negatively about people in the past.
2: A year earlier... Slava had written about human trafficking charges against Derek Wise, who is now signed to XO's record label. All charges against him were dropped. We asked Derek Wise and XO for comment on this, but received no response.
1: I was at a party and they sent a group of guys to jump. Well, there was one guy, he and I got into an altercation. I knocked him out. He came back with seven guys. I ran because I'm not going to fight seven guys. I ran to the back room, the green room. Wynn Butler was there. Wynn Butler was like looking at me and he goes, I'm not doing this shit again. He's talking to a promoter and he's like, I'm not doing this shit again. This happened in Dallas and I'm not going to be around this beef again.
2: That's Wynn Butler from Arcade Fire, which is just so random that I can't tell what's more likely. That Slava made up this whole scenario to cover the more likely explanation for his black eye that he was beaten for messing up the drug smuggling, or that it's real. It seems Slava's juggling act between the hip-hop scene, his criminal conspiracy, and his job advice all came crashing down at the same time. Back at work, the game was up.
1: The next thing I know, I'm brought into an office where Patrick's not there. It's
5: just HR people and these two old guys in a suit. He disappeared. Around an hour, came back, disappeared again, came back, packed his stuff up left.
1: They gave me my termination papers and they escorted me out of the building.
5: By about 1 p.m., 2 p.m. that day, we were notified that the situation had been dealt with, but that was it.
1: It was like, okay, the repercussions of this are going to start to kick in now.
2: The job that Slava had built his life around was gone. On the other hand, he walked out of Vice a free man. Vice was now rid of Slava. So what was their next move? Here's Justin Ling.
3: My understanding is, you know, is that when um, management found out about this whole operation, it went to um, the people who were solicited by Slava, as many as they could find, um, and, and took their statements and, and investigated you know, what um, is alleged to have happened and, and dealt with it pretty quickly.
2: That's the understanding Vice wanted its employees and the public to have. Their sole statement about this entire affair provided to the National Post when this story broke included the following. Upon learning of these allegations in early 2016, Vice Canada took immediate and swift action to address these claims through our Human Resources Department, enlisting an employment law specialist to consult throughout and engaging an outside criminal law firm to conduct an investigation on our behalf and contact the Toronto Police Service. Based on the results of the internal investigation, the employee was promptly terminated. The National Post had reasons to be skeptical about that statement.
6: We had some concerns about the uh, thoroughness of their investigation.
2: That's Adrian Humphreys, a senior investigative reporter with the National Post. He and his then-colleague Sean Craig were the reporters who first broke this whole story. Before working for the Post, Sean worked here as a reporter at Canada Land. This is Adrian talking to us in 2017.
6: None of the people we spoke to, both the people that uh, told us they had uh, been solicited... And people that told us they had not been solicited, none of the current or former employees of Vice that we spoke to, except for one, could tell us that they had been made aware of the situation by, by management. None of them were able to told us that they had been asked whether they had been approached or even accepted. I mean, stop to think for a minute. If, if If the people we know about are the people that are most likely to speak to the press or people that said no to the offer, how do we know that some people didn't say yes? How do we know some people in the Vice office didn't say yes?
2: We don't know. We don't know if any other former or even current Vice employees smuggled cocaine for Slava. And it doesn't seem like Vice knows either, because it doesn't seem like they ever tried to find out. Vice didn't seem curious to learn about how Slava used his position and their brand to help him with his crimes. For example, they never asked former staffer Tanera Yelland, and Slava had asked her to take the trip. Did Vice ever reach out to you and ask you if you had been asked by Slava to traffic drugs internationally?
4: No. I never heard
6: from Vice.
2: And while Vice insists that they did phone the police, Adrian Humphreys was unable to find any record that Vice reported the crime.
6: I'm not going to call anyone a liar. I suggest it was contact with police, but there had not been a report made to police, and that's a keen distinction. The Toronto police made it very clear to us. They searched under various names uh, of people who might report. They searched on the name of the alleged uh, accused and the employee. And it is quite clear for what Toronto Police says to us, that a report had not been made to them about this incident.
2: If Vice was strategizing to put the whole thing behind them as quickly and with as little attention as possible, it seems like they did an excellent job. And it's worth noting that while Vice as a news organization prides itself on its coverage of drugs, This is one drug story they knew a lot about, but did not report. And that really bothered Jake.
5: There was no way this guy was ever going to go to justice if, like, there was nothing written about him. Because there was nothing happening. There was no, you know.
2: How could Slava be walking free while the others were in prison?
5: Like, again, the people who were approached for this opportunity were the people who were likely to not be there for very long, and... We're definitely people who are the least secure in their position and in their life. So it's easy for you to go, oh, you know what, this internship, once it's over, I'm just going to go take this trip because that's my next paycheck. I don't have something after this.
2: Jake knew the story had to be told, but he didn't trust Vice with it, even though he was back working there after a short internship at another
5: newsroom. So I started working at the National Post as, as a source, basically.
6: We had um, very believable allegations that a senior member of staff who was working as an editor in the Canadian headquarters of Vice Media was recruiting young journalists and young musical uh, and other artists in the Toronto area. Well, actually, and beyond, believe it or not, for a, what the Australian police referred to as a transnational criminal organization and an organized crime gang.
2: Adrian and Sean worked on Slava's story for months, with several sources, including Jake, who wanted their names kept out of it. Some were afraid of Slava and whoever he was working with. And some were afraid for their jobs.
6: Vice Media is a very desirous location for young journalists to land. They're the hip, millennial-viewed media conglomerate. They're a $4 billion enterprise that seems to be able to attract eyeballs that the mainstream media or the legacy media jealously want. So it's, it's a good gig.
2: Slava wouldn't talk to the reporters. So finally, they physically handed him a copy of their questions and took pictures of him reading them. He looks caught. The National Post ran the story in February 2017. It got picked up all over the world. In Spin Magazine, The Hollywood Reporter, The New York Post, and The Daily Mail.
1: At this point, I haven't said anything to anyone about anything. And my parents are calling me because I'm on E-Talk that night talking about this massive drug conspiracy at Vice.
2: Unsurprisingly, Slava hated the story.
1: And another thing I want to correct is that people keep, especially in the stories since that Adrian keeps bringing up, he calls them young Canadians. Like, me and Jordan are a week apart in birthdays, and yet he's a young Canadian and I'm a ruthless vice villain.
2: Slava hated being cast as a ruthless vice villain. But at the time... You'd think he might have been more worried about fallout from the Mexican cartel, who he says provided the cocaine. Or the two men he calls Tweedledum and Tweedledee, who he worked for. Or one other person he says conspired in the crime, the bodybuilder he calls Trey, but who we know is actually named Michael Ford.
1: Trey got in touch with me and essentially just told me to keep my mouth shut. So after the National Post story broke, I got a series of phone calls and Trey actually came to visit me in person. And again, with the National Post story, there was no legal repercussions. So in my mind, I'm like, this is the worst of it. Like, yeah, I'm going to be shamed online, but ultimately, who cares if I can still have my freedom and start over in Montreal.
2: And that's just what Slava did. He moved to Montreal and changed his name to Yari Farrow. He says he started a company doing business-to-business marketing.
1: It was good work. It was fulfilling work. I love Montreal, and I got to do a lot of stuff for myself and learned a lot of stuff in my field. It was a little bit like a rebirth in, in a lot of ways, but it was always weird to think that something was coming.
2: It took nearly two years. On January 31st, 2019, Slava and Ali Lalji were arrested in separate cities and charged with conspiracy to traffic cocaine.
1: So the day that they catch me, they caught me in Montreal going into my condo, they detained me there for the day, and then the next day they put me on a private jet to fly me down to the downtown Toronto courthouse.
2: After the National Post story broke, things went badly for Jake. He was meant to be a confidential source. He still worked at Vice, after all. And now the whole company was dealing with the scandal. The National Post even asked Vice's CEO and co-founder Shane Smith about it. Shane had previously boasted about slinging coke in his youth, before launching Vice, a claim that no journalist looking into it has ever been able to verify. When the Post asked Shane about this for their story, he replied, and I quote, WTF, So stupid. Vice knew that its own employees had provided information to the Post. But did they know which ones?
5: If you get called out as a snitch in the company, your value there has just dropped exponentially.
2: It was now Jake's turn to go to work, worried that management might find out what he had been up to.
5: The article came, out, I think, on like a Thursday or a Friday. And I was flying to Montreal for like a small photo gig that I had. And when I landed in Montreal... People had messaged me being like, yo, I know what you did.
2: Jake says it would have been easy for the vice higher-ups to piece together that he was a source for the story.
5: They had left an identifying detail. It was a text message, the text message that I received from Slava. I had provided that to the company as evidence, and they included it in the article verbatim.
2: I asked Adrian and Sean if they accidentally exposed one of their sources. They told us that they asked for a copy of relevant text messages and for permission to use them, which was granted. They also said, we greatly respect and appreciate Jake and the strength of character he showed in sharing his experience with us.
5: Some people were like, yo, I know what you did, respect.
2: But other journalists were openly hostile to him at work.
5: A lot of people at the company were not happy with me. A lot of employees, like people just started like treating me like shit.
2: Jake says his job changed immediately.
5: My last month of Vice was like, it was like a separate reality. Like I wasn't working. I was just in rooms with lawyers arguing with the heads of the company. They would basically ask me, why didn't you come to the company before going to the press? And I said, well, we did come to you before. And you guys fired him, but then you had no discussion about it afterwards. And I'm curious as to how a media company that prides itself on being on the forefront of honesty, integrity, social justice, all these sort of things, can't look a story like that in the face and go, we should report on this before someone else does.
2: Jake felt like he was in limbo, surrounded by hostile colleagues.
5: Some people were become very cold and dejected and like just not interested. Ultimately, I asked, I said, look, I either need to be moved out of this department because I can't work with people around me anymore because they don't trust me and they don't seem to like having me around, or I'd like to go to Noisy.
2: They didn't transfer him. But they didn't fire him either. It would have looked terrible for Vice to fire Jake. But he feels like they did freeze him out.
5: I just said, okay, I quit. Because I'm, I'm not going to stay working here for $15 an hour and feel like everyone in the office doesn't like me because I exposed what was happening. They kind of like were like, are you sure you want to do this? But they had no interest in keeping me. They offered nothing to keep me. They, they knew, they're, they're like, well, we're not firing you. And they, they told me that you should be thankful for that. You should be thankful we're not firing you.
2: It was a low point for Jake. He had hoped that by blowing the whistle, he could change the place.
5: But the culture, that, whatever I was hoping that would have happened, didn't. I thought there would have been a great opening where it was sort of like, okay, you know, let's talk about this. And it wasn't that. It was just this, it was further resistance. It was further like, shh. And I just couldn't participate in that.
2: We asked Vice about Jake's time there, about the circumstances under which he left, all of it but they didn't respond. So even though Jake and Slava are coming from completely different angles here, they both suggest something about the culture at Vice contributed to the crime. On its face, it's preposterous to me as a journalist that any newsroom culture could lead someone to enter into an international criminal conspiracy like Slava claims happened at Vice. But Vice's culture isn't like any other newsrooms. And it began a long time ago, when Vice was founded in 1994.
3: And I always used to say, like, if you're looking at Vice for being news and the truth, then you're in trouble.
2: That's next time. If you like this podcast, you might like Crime Lines. Take a listen.
4: Charlie here. I'm the host of a podcast called Crime Lines. Each week, I go in depth about a true crime case, I organize the information in an easy to follow manner, and I provide context to what has happened. We're going to talk media biases and reporting, the legal process, and all those important things that help bring something new to a story you may or may not have heard before. I keep things conversational so you don't realize how much you're learning and we will just ignore the fact that I'm talking to myself alone in my basement. Recent Crime Lines episodes cover Lori Daybell and her missing children, the disappearance of mother of five, Jennifer Dulos, and the murder of promising young professional, Naila Franklin. You can find Crime Lines by searching Crime Lines in your favorite podcast app and hit that subscribe button today so you won't miss an episode.
2: Cool Mules is hosted and reported by me, Kasia Mihailovich, and is written and produced by me and Jesse Brown. Research assistance from Jonathan Goldsby. Kevin Sexton is our managing editor and also helped produce this episode. Music by Nathan Burley. Sound design and mix by Chandra Bulacan. The next episode of Cool Mules will be released in one week, but you can hear the entire series right now, ad-free, by clicking the link in the episode notes and signing up to support our reporting with $5 a month. You can also support us at coolmules.ca slash join.